Um, with all that said, we're going to get right into the book of Ezra. Uh, so, um, and I've noticed over the last couple of weeks that I keep saying, with all that said. So, with all that said, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get into Ezra. Um, and we are, we are journeying through this book, and we are talking about rebuilding. Not, not, dealing with, not dealing with first times or second times or third times, um, but what happens as we're rebuilding uh, our lives, the institutions of our life, rebuilding, um, you know, we, we, could, we could spend hours talking about the process of rebuilding uh, a congregation, a process that we've been through a couple of times um, and always uh, seen God do extraordinary things. Rebuilding relationships, rebuilding marriages, uh, rebuilding uh, from the foundation up. Uh, many of you, many of you uh, had a relationship that imploded, and you had to find a new way to live. Um, and 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 our our lives are a process of rebuilding. Those of you that have blended families, you know that rebuilding never stops. You're always dealing with it. Um, those those who have been uh, adopted in foster care, you know that there's always a process of rebuilding. And those of you that were privileged enough to grow up in your family with your biological father and mother, and, and everybody assumes that that's a recipe for perfection, and that is not true. Um, it's always, we're always rebuilding. And we could go through our lives and we could count, I, I bet that if we took the time to really process it, most of us could sit there and say, uh, a dozen or two dozen things in your life that you've had to rebuild. I had to rebuild my relationship with my father. I had to rebuild my relationship with my children. I had to rebuild a relationship with an employer, with a friend that I upset, a friend that upset me. I had to rebuild a relationship with, uh, you know, who, I don't know, your plumber. I mean, there, there's, endless, there's endless lists of things that we're constantly rebuilding. But then there's also our spiritual side. When we struggle and we stumble and we get frustrated or, or we fall into sin and we have to rebuild, we have to reestablish ourselves and we go through all the doubts and fears and struggles of that. Am I, you know, have I fallen too far? Did I disqualify myself? Can I ever recover from this? But then God is always at work rebuilding. Sometimes He's re- rebuilding big things. Sometimes He's rebuilding physical things. Sometimes he's rebuilding unseeable things, things that are tiny, things that are small, things that are a part of us, that are in that intangible part of us. And regardless what he's rebuilding, today we're going to look at how, uh, well, God's timing as he rebuilds. And join me in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into Ezra chapter 4. Father, as we look back to the temple and we look forward to what you are building in us and through us, the kingdom that you will establish that um, no power can destroy, the, the new life that you have uh, created in us that no man can take because it is in your hand and you are in the Father's. Jesus, as we look to you, May our words come more into harmony with your words. May our actions synchronize with your actions. May our perspective and view of the world find synergy in your perspective 
and view. May we not only see the world as you see it, but love the world as you love it. Teach us patience and hope. Help us to see what your spirit has for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ezra chapter 4, we ended last week. Um, The adversaries had come. The opponents had come. Those who were trying to prevent the rebuilding. And I had printed up like a little help sheet um, for this section with all kinds of Persian names and things in it. um, And then discovered that I had uh, made a chronological error. Um, and uh, so I had to destroy them all. So I will make new ones and print them out for you later. Um, but uh, I, had, I had dated one of the Persian kings wrong. I know that doesn't bother you, but it bothers me. Um, and so I decided to kind of, I'll, I'll put it online and you can grab it. So I apologize in advance for all these crazy names. But in chapter 4 and verse 4 of the book of Ezra, The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, reading the book of Ezra... Uh, you get this idea that the book is organized chronologically. Um, in fact, it is all over the place in terms of chronology. Um, the, the, the kings, just so you know, if you, I know that you guys are really worried about this, but the Persian kings, Cyrus the Great founded what's, what's the, the Persian Empire. Uh, then his son Cambyses ruled over it and conquered Egypt. And then there was a supposed son named Bardia who took over. But there was a general... Uh, named Darius, who didn't like Bardia, and so he killed him, and then went all the way back in his family tree to find a common ancestor between him and Cyrus, and established uh, himself as the ruler, as the Shah of the Persians, and that's where the ter- term that you'll hear me use, Achaemenid, comes from. Um, their ancestor is a guy named Achaemenes, um, and so they're like, and Darius kind of said, "Oh, look, I, I'm really the rightful king." Um, and in English, his name is just Darius. In, in uh, Persian, it is Dariwashosh. Um, and that's why we just call him Darius. Um, but uh, this, he, this whole story here, Cyrus, king of Persia, in verse 5, to the reign of Darius, king of Persia, um, this is a time frame of no less than eight years, but probably closer to 16. The people of Israel or the people of Judah, they go to build the temple, they lay the foundations, they get all excited that they're going to build it. Then what we talked about last week, the adversaries show up, the Samaritans, all these other people that said, we worship your God, let's worship together, let us build a house next to you. And uh, they say no, Zerubbabel and the Jews say no. And so this group of people manages to stop the construction of the temple for 16 years. And they do it through a whole process of diplomacy. If you read through, you will find a letter um, to in the days of Artaxerxes. um, And this is weird because Artaxerxes is Darius' successor. So this letter actually comes later, but it's proven the point. That's what I mentioned. Ezekiel is all over the place. Um, But in this letter, um, which was written in Aramaic and translated... Uh, these guys, Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, they write a letter 
Um, and, uh, and they describe themselves in verse 9. They say the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Shusha, the men, that is the Elamites. They say basically everybody doesn't want the Jews to build this temple. And so the king of Persia stops them from building the temple. It goes on and on. Chapter 5, um, there, is, uh, there are the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. We talked about them last year. Um, who told the Jews to go ahead and build the temple. So they actually tell them to defy the rule of the, the master of the known world and begin rebuilding this temple. And they do. Um, and then we get this moment in chapter 5, and I know I'm going through, but verse 3, at the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, now, this is, um, this is what's called a satrapy, uh, a providence. Uh, the Persian Empire was the, divided up. It was governed by an emperor, the Shah, who could not possibly rule the whole thing. And the Shah would appoint local leaders, local rulers, like Zerubbabel, who was a Jew. He would appoint them to kind of run little, little parts of the empire. But Darius brought in a system... Um, uh, that he got from his past, um, his group of people. Darius is a, a Mede. He comes from the steppes of Central Asia. Um, and, uh, and they had kind of a chieftain way of doing things where you would find somebody that you, you knew you could trust and you would make them basically absolute ruler over big chunks of your kingdom. And now this is, in, in uh, Greek, it's called the satrapy. Um, that's a Greek word. Um, in, in Persian, uh, the word ahura is lord. Um, and ahura comes to us, you may not see it, but it actually comes to us in verse 6, the reign of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus means the, the, the head lord. All right? Ahara rosh. All right, now, Rosh is a Hebrew word, but it's the same word in, in the Persian. It is the head. And the satrapies, the, the governors, were called Ahara Darapen, which means the face of the Lord. So the idea was there was a king, all right, and the Hebrews just use this word Ahasuerus. They transcribe it, and they just use it for every Persian king. They just call him that. It's just the title. They say, he's the head Lord. Right? He's the head man. And then there is the face of the head man. That's the governor. That's who Tatanai is. Tatanai is the face of the Persian king. He actually has the right of life and death over everybody west of the Euphrates. He is an absolute ruler. He answers only to the Persian king, the Shah. Now, if you're wondering why they use that name, this is a little historical thing for fun. Um, you'll actually see this in the book of Esther. Um, but there was a rule that you were not allowed to look at the Shah. If you went into the presence of the king, if you went into the presence of Darius or, or Xerxes or Artaxerxes or any of the kings, they're all named Darius, Xerxes, or Artaxerxes. There's like eight of every name. Um, if you were to go into the presence of one of those kings and look at him, they would behead you. You were not allowed to look at him unless he extended his scepter to you. If he did, you were allowed to look at him and speak. 
If you didn't, you had to literally be laying on the ground, face down in the, on the ground, and if he chose not to let you speak, you stayed there until he left the room. He had absolute power. The reason that these guys were called the face of the Lord was that they were the only people in the empire that could look at him face to face. He had given them perpetual right to, to see his face. This is Tatanai. This is who he is. He is the face of the king. And he writes a letter, um, and, he's, and Ezra records it in chapter uh, chapter 5 and verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the, the governor, all right, the, the face of the king, uh, of the province behind the river, and Shethar Bozanai, how would you like to be named that, and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, so this is his secondary governors, sent to Darius the king, and they sent him a report in which was written as follows, to Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. Now remember, this is in defiance of an order from a previous king. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them and said, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Because, you know, you're not supposed to be doing it. And we also asked them their names for your information that we might write them down, the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So this is all history we're familiar with. And the gold and... Uh, or, however... In the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt. Now that's in verse one, chapter 1, the decree. Um, that it should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon. And they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar. This is just reiterating uh, chapter 1. Therefore, in verse 17, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So what he's really saying is, uh, these guys are doing this thing. They claim that Cyrus said that they could do the thing. I really need to know whether I should kill him or not. And that's really what he's saying. Because if they're defying the king, they absolutely should be killed. There, there's no question about this. So um, this guy is smart enough to say, all right, if Cyrus made this order, then we need to know. Now, I don't know if you remember, but three weeks ago when we started, when we were, we were remote and I did the video, I talked about chapter one. There's a decree from Cyrus, and it's in Hebrew, the language of the Jews. But all of the legal documents of the, uh, of the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire were written in Aramaic, what the Persians called the language of the Assyrians. 
There's a very good reason why that one is in Hebrew. Um, as near as we can tell, they didn't have it. They didn't have like a tablet that they could hold up and say to Tatanai, see, we got permission. And they got no building permit. So, so they don't have it. So when Ezra recounts it in Hebrew, he's kind of saying, look, we knew that this was the case, but there was, we didn't have any proof of it. So Tatanai sends a letter to Darius, and he says, search the archives of Babylon. Now, there's a very good reason for this. Darius doesn't live in Babylon. The, the Persian king didn't live anywhere. He was, it wasn't a palace culture. He was a military leader. He was always moving around. They couldn't have cared less about Babylon. They just did not care about that city. They knew it was important, and there were people there. They just didn't care. They were too busy conquering Egypt and Asia Minor, fighting the Greeks. Um, Darius is the one who fights the Battle of Marathon against the Greeks. Um, and they're just, they're like, you know, um, so Tatanai sends, he says, hey, can you just check the archives in Babylon? And then Darius, chapter 6 and verse 1, Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. Now, um, this is an interesting little point, um, but probably the scribes who are maintaining the archive in Babylon were probably the Jews who were living there. So they were fully aware of what was going on. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, that was Darius's technical capital, it's way to the east, southeastern um, uh, mid, uh, central Iran today, uh, a scroll was found in which this was written, or a book was found, Sefer, um, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree, and here's the decree in Aramaic, not in Hebrew. In fact, it's more elaborate than the one in chapter 1. It explains the size of the temple, how, could it, how big it could be. It explains where the money for the temple is going to come from. Um, and it puts all this stuff. And so Darius then in verse, nine, verse 8, he says, So, Tatanai, uh, go ahead and build, let them build that temple. In fact, don't even just let them build, but verse, uh, verse 9 my eyesight is failing. Verse 9, whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let them be given to them day by day without fail, that they may also they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the lives of the king and his sons. Now, it may not sound like a big deal that he says salt, but this is a big deal in the Persian Empire. In the Persian Empire, to eat of the salt of the king was to have his favor. So for them to grant salt is basically granting them his favor. Um, but it's not enough. Verse 11, also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it. Okay. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. I don't know if the threat of impalement is not a motivation to do things with diligence. I don't know what is. But he says that this temple is going to be built. Now, Darius chooses his language very, very um, carefully. And I want to explain why. I mentioned already the idea of the setrap, the, the, 
um, this the face of the Lord. Uh, that's a that's a thing from Darius. Darius invented that system. It didn't exist before him. Um, so Ezra is very much set in history here that he's talking about these this relationship of the satrap and the and the um, and the king, the Shah. But there's another interesting thing that happened with Darius, uh, a change that happened in the empire um, when Darius took over. Uh, the early Persians were were what we might call um, uh, polytheistic spiritualists. They were they were much more like their religion was very much like um, uh, kind of like Hinduism. Um, they had they believed everything had a spirit and everything was kind of connected and there was it was kind of a pre um, a pre-Hindu, pre-Buddhist kind of way of religion. Darius, however, has a very different take on religion. Uh, Darius follows a practice, uh, a religion that's called Mazna, uh, Mazda Yane, um, uh, or today we call it Zoroastrianism. Uh, Mazda Yane, Mazda, it means good worship, to the pleasing worship. Mazda means worship, uh, or goodness, good. Um, uh, uh, Ahura Mazda is the main god of his religion, which means the good lord. Darius believes that all local gods are just corrupted or, or lesser versions of Ahura Mazda. So he believes that the god of Judah is really... Um, just a kind of messed up version of his God. And so for him, the idea that you would deny these people the way that Ahura Mazda had revealed himself to them, that is the ultimate blasphemy. To tell them that they couldn't have their temple was paramount to deny him, to deny the God who had made Darius king. That's why he writes the letter the way he does. If you read it, you can actually kind of see this idea that, yeah, yeah, those Jews, they, they see Ahura Mazda as this one God, this God of heaven and earth that they're talking about. And the Babylonians see him this way, and the Canaanites see him this way, and the Greeks see him this way. That's, that's all fine. That's all fine and good. But it's kind of condescending. He's like, but I, I, I know the truth. I've got, you know, an inside track. And, and his religion is dualistic, so there's... Um, Basically, there's this idea that Ahura Mazda is light and then there's darkness and there, it's constantly in battle. And, and so he's always trying to bring the light. He's always trying to... And, and this worship of this God in Judah, he's, he's very much like this is obviously going to bring light. It's going to win him points. Darius is all about points. He is all about pleasing Ahura Mazda. Why bring up all of that history? I know you were all super excited. You're like, I said Ahura Mazda, and you guys started thinking about cars. You were off. Uh, Ahura Mazda. I heard a Toyota. It was, um, you know, but this, this, why bring this all up? Keep in mind that when the people came to build the temple, they were delayed and they were stopped. They were opposed. Do you realize that God moved the entire political world of Persia to allow them to rebuild the temple. He replaced the king. He replaced the religion. He replaced the administration. And to Ezra, all that was so that they could rebuild the temple. 
and he took Darius, who worships this other god, and he, he raises up a view, a point of view, where the Jews are able to survive and thrive and rebuild their kingdom and be sponsored by somebody who's not going to interfere with them. The Babylonians would have interfered. The Egyptians would have interfered. Darius is like, hey, whatever. It's all good. It's just about bringing the light. Now, Darius doesn't understand a thing about what's going in Judah. He's never been to Judah. He has no interest in the temple in Jerusalem. He is completely and utterly not involved except to write a letter and say, go ahead and do this, and if anybody stops you, just impale them for me. It is extraordinary that when God is working in our lives to rebuild what he intends to be our lives. He will use extraordinary means to accomplish his will. When we look at our life and we go, all right, well, how on earth am I ever going to rebuild this? We have to remember our God moves the world to accomplish his purposes. Now, he doesn't do it overnight, and that's really where our problem is. We look at uh, the rebuilding process of our life, and we just say, well, God, you just need to shake things up. If you could just send an earthquake so I don't have to pay my mortgage, that would be great. That would get me out of debt so fast. You know, dear Jesus, send us lightning that might burn our stuff down. We want instant gratification, and it gets worse and worse as technology advances. We, we expect things to happen immediately. I mean, I order stuff on Amazon sometimes, and it shows up at my house the next morning. I don't even understand where it came from. How on earth did they have in stock that book that there are only five of? Get it all the way to my house. Uh, I, it blows my mind how quickly we move things around. I mean, I, the masks that I wear came from China in a day and a half. I don't even understand how that happened. I mean, I know the daylight savings, you know, they cross the international date line, so then they gain a day, I don't know. Um, but they, I mean, things move so fast, and we're so used to instant gratification. 16 years. They just had foundations and no temple. 16 years they waited for God to move heaven and earth so that they could build their temple. 16 years. And yet sometimes we so often we're like, well, I just want a quick fix. I just I need this fixed now. If I just pray a prayer, it should trigger something and, and things will be work out. Or if we just we go and you know, if we just have a, a you know one good talk, that's gonna work everything out and everything will be better. Can I tell you that a human being and a human soul is a whole lot more complicated than a temple? That God can move, will move heaven and earth, but he will move it on his time frame, and our job is to pay, be patient and diligent in what he has called us to do. So often, uh, we, we sit around looking to be the cause of God's work rather than to be a part of God's work. 
We want to try to force God's hand and get the temple built on our own time. And yet God, think about all of these things that God orchestrated. Not only does he bring the Persian Empire and all that stuff and language and religion and all that, but also he equips prophets at just the right time to tell the people to start building at a time when Tatanai is governor and willing to write a letter to the king that's been totally been revamped and readjusted. Everything working for God's glory. Even condescending, egotistical Darius. Is there any question why? Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. This is the first time. It is the first time since the reign of Josiah. And Josiah died in 604 B.C. And this is occurring uh, around... Uh, around 500, 520. It is the first time in 80 or 90 years that they have been able to observe the Passover. It's the first time all the instruments have been together. It's the first time that the sacrifices could be carried out. It is the first time that they have been able to do this thing. And the priests, verse 20, the priests and the Levites purified themselves together. All of them were clean. This was the first time that they could do that because uh, they... They needed a lot of the stuff the king was giving to them. They slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord. That's a, tan- that's a conversation about those people, the opponents, the adversaries. There were some who had left them and worshipped. Worshipped the Lord, the God of Israel. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Can I just give you one last bit about waiting 16 years for God to move heaven and earth? When he does what he does, when he does it, you know who did it. When God moves heaven and earth and you're able to celebrate the Passover together like these people have after 80 years, there is no doubt in their mind who put Darius on the throne. There is no doubt in their mind who put Tatanai as governor of the, of the province beyond the river. There is no doubt in their mind who prepared the Levites and the priests. There is no doubt in their mind why that sheep, that lamb, which had been given to them by the emperor of the world, there was no doubt in their mind why that unleavened bread was cause for joy. And ask yourself this question. If God just instantaneously fixed everything that was broken in your life, Would you have any gratitude whatsoever for what he was doing? You say, well, why does God have to put us through difficulty in order to bring healing? Why does God have to to make me wait? I don't want to wait. If you don't want to wait for God to fix things, you're not ready for God to fix things. When God does what God does, we know who did it. 
but I want it fixed. I want it rebuilt. Can I encourage you, patience and diligence in the work of God are far more important than being able to mark off the boxes of everything that he's done. Well, that's fixed. Moving on. That's fixed. That's fixed. We are not in the business. We are not in the business of feeling good about all that we've done. Our worship is the celebration of the God who moves heaven and earth. We are not in the business of being able to say, well, that's, you know, here's 12 steps and you do these things and tomorrow everything will be better. We joke around all the time about my counseling technique. And now my first question is, what are you doing that's sin? Stop doing that and come back to me. Everybody laughs about that, but the reality is you can't go to step two if you don't do step one. You can't move beyond sin if you keep sinning. And God doesn't rebuild what needs to be rebuilt until it's ready to be rebuilt. Until he lines everything up. And you know what that means? It means that for every seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there may be 16 years of wondering whether God is ever going to fix it. 16 years of preparation, 16 years of work, fruitless work. Not seeing anything. Not having any tangible result. And our modern mind goes, well, if there are no tangible results, you're not a success. You have to try something different. 16 years. But when God did it, he did it. And there was no doubt who had done it. Would you join me in prayer? God, it is difficult to be patient with ourselves while we wait for you to do what we don't understand. Father, it is hard to rely on your work when we think we know the answers. To wait for your king when we think we have the, the solution. Father, you did not just call us to walk in green pastures, but to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. You did not call us to be the preferred majority, but often the oppressed minority. You did not call us to stand on a mountain and call all people to ourselves, but rather we stand in the shadow of your cross and call all to you. May we endure with patience and diligence the work and the weight of you rebuilding our lives, our hopes, our relationships. Not to be complacent, to be devoted to you, trusting that you are sovereign and you are moving heaven and earth to accomplish your purposes. We pray all of this because you have graciously given to us what we do not deserve. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus who is the one who grants it to us. Amen. Go in peace, my brother.